Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming from East Carolina University. Today in Civil War Talk Radio, we'll be talking with John Y. Simon, the nation's leading authority on General and later President Ulysses S. Grant. John Y. Simon is Professor of History at Southern Illinois University at Carbondale, editor of the papers of Ulysses S. Grant. He received his Ph.D. from Harvard in 1961 and has been working on the Grant Papers essentially ever since. We'll be back in a minute with John Y. Simon. Onboard computers to improve fuel efficiency and reduce emissions. Check. Acoustic and optical wayside monitors to enhance safety. Check. Robotic systems to measure track geometry. Check. GPS tracking and tracing systems. Check. Sounds like a rocket or a jet getting ready for takeoff, doesn't it? Actually, it's something just as technologically advanced. A freight train. There's a new world of technology riding the rails that makes today's freight railroads more fuel efficient, safer, and cleaner running than ever. With wireless communications, transponders, and trackside readers that can pinpoint a shipment's location at speeds of up to 80 miles an hour, North America's freight railroads are driving the technology required by today's businesses and consumers. And with everything from apples to computers moving by rail, we wouldn't have it any other way. Chances are, the things you'll use tomorrow are taking the train today. Tomorrow, arriving by train. Sponsored by North America's Freight Railroads. Mission Critical. Two words that describe the data vital to every e-commerce website. If your company needs the services of an unparalleled co-location facility, you need to remember these two words. Castle Access. With Castle Access, your Internet servers will be secure in environmentally controlled data centers that offer high-speed managed Internet access and the highest standards of 24-7 customer support. For more info, visit castleaccess.com. Castle Access. We keep you online all the time. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. Welcome to World Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and with me today is John Y. Simon, editor of the papers of Ulysses S. Grant. John, thanks for joining us today. It's my pleasure, Jerry. It's always good to hear from you. I was reading your uh, bio before doing the show, and it, it says there that you're a Harvard man. Guilty. Guilty. There's no way to erase that particular stain from the record, is there? Well, I guess not. The thing is, uh, I've, we've known each other a long time, and I guess I'd never realized that. Uh, I tell everybody I went to Harvard every opportunity I get, uh, and, and you've kept it secret. It reminds me of... Uh, uh, Gilligan's Island, the time uh, Thurston Howell wakes up and says, Lovey, I had the worst nightmare. I dreamed I was a Yale man. <laughs> but well, here we are. I went there so long ago, I think Increase Mather was still around. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's get right to talking about uh, the man mentioned in, in the introduction there, uh, Ulysses S. Grant. Uh, a good way to be, would be to start out with sort of a tepid, non-controversial question. Was Grant the best general of the Civil War? Well, uh, North and South Magazine had a uh, poll. Um, leading Civil War scholars just uh, uh, this past year. And uh, they were asked to uh, rank the Civil War generals uh, in order of merit. 
And five out of the six picked Grant as the greatest general of the Civil War. And the one who didn't pick Grant uh, was the maverick who picked Lincoln. Uh, and it's quite surprising to me. Now, I was one of them, so uh, I don't really count. But it is surprising that among Civil War experts, that's become the consensus. And uh, only um, now 25, 30 years ago, the vote almost certainly would have gone to Lee. That is, uh, we've had a shift in opinion over the uh, uh, recent years, uh, away from Lee, toward Grant, and uh, I find it fascinating. One never knows who the greatest general of the Civil War will be in the opinion of the next generation. Uh, I hope it's going to uh, continue to be uh, Grant, or at least that there'll be some sort of reversion to Lee, but one never can predict the way that uh, the opinion of scholars is going to uh, waver. Now, the, the opinion of scholars and the opinion of the general public are not always in, in sync. I would guess a lot of people with a sort of cursory interest in the Civil War would think of Grant as uh, a butcher who, who won because he had more men, and Lee was the military artist who uh, performed wonders with few resources. But that's no longer the academic consensus. That isn't the same uh, consensus. No, and uh, when you take that uh, public consensus, when you're absolutely right about that, it means that the uh, public is usually uh, 20, 30 years behind uh, academic thinking. But eventually it catches up. Academic thinking um, uh, 30 years ago was that Lee was the great general of the Civil War, and uh, people who went to school then learned and never uh, refreshed their uh, appreciation of the uh, Civil War. I should say that uh, despite this um, vote for Grant recently, uh, not every scholar is going to agree. And uh, it doesn't mean that uh, there's been a falling off of admiration for Lee. Uh, it's simply a matter of a new admiration for Grant and an appreciation of the fact that uh, here is the man who uh, actually captured uh, three rebel armies and uh, the man who made uh, victory certain. And not simply through uh, a a butcher's mentality, a willingness to uh, waste human lives in uh, an attempt to uh, make those overwhelming uh, numbers count, but instead, varying his technique from campaign to campaign, noting the uh, peculiar factors in each, and somehow uh, coming through. This uh, is a new appreciation of Grant. Not everybody shares it, of course, but uh, it's of interest, I should think. You mentioned he captured three armies, Fort Donaldson, Vicksburg, and then uh, Appomattox. The two of those are in the West. Did did Grant have a particular... Uh, uh, that's where he learned how to be a general, I suppose. Well, the, he had an interesting um, uh, attitude toward that. Uh, he was just a little uh, older than uh, General McClellan who took command of the armies in the East for President Lincoln in 1861 and did not do well. And um, 
later on would say that uh, McClellan never had a chance to learn from his mistakes, never had a chance to uh, rise from uh, the relative obscurity with which Grant entered the war and show his full uh, maturation as a uh, general. And I tend to agree with this, that uh, uh, one of the things that's often forgotten about uh, Grant is that he's a relatively young man uh, when the war begins. He um, turns 40 after he's uh, won the Battle of Shiloh. Now, in today's army, no man that young would ever be given such an important command. But uh, in uh, the Civil War, the U.S. Army was such a mess such a mess when uh, the war began. It gave an opportunity uh, for those who were re-entering the army from civil life, as Grant was, or people who held low rank in the old army to uh, show their talents and uh, gradually advance. But none of them advanced without making mistakes first. And Grant made some uh, interesting mistakes when he was commanding in the West. That is, his first battle, the battle at Belmont, Missouri, it's uh, it's a mess. He lost control of his men. He didn't coordinate well with the uh, naval vessels, which were absolutely essential in that battle. And uh, he uh, didn't know how to rally his troops when the Confederates uh, counterattacked. And as a result, uh, his first battle in the Civil War is essentially a drawn battle. It's not a great victory. Uh, both sides claim victory, and uh, neither side deserved to. But what's important about Grant is that he learned from this battle, and while he made mistakes later on, he didn't make the same mistakes. And uh, that seems to be terribly important. Uh, the second thing... <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, is that he had already learned not to be afraid of the enemy. Uh, the first time he'd come close to an enemy, uh, he was very nervous. It was in Missouri. And uh, he found that the enemy had left uh, before he got there. And he said, I learned the enemy was as afraid of me as I was of him. And that's a lesson I never forgot. So that um, uh, here's somebody who's... Uh, starting off with uh, the opportunity to learn, the opportunity to uh, make mistakes and recover from them, and eventually uh, hone a technique that is in uh, full blossom by the end of the war. The campaign against uh, Lee that leads to Appomattox is uh, often an overlooked masterpiece. Everybody knows about the Vicksburg campaign. That is, that's very clear. Uh, Grant said his very best there, um, turning his back on Vicksburg and instead going to the state capital at Jackson, isolating uh, Pemberton, um, forcing him into uh, a siege, managing the siege with great success. All that is pretty clear. Uh, but the Appomattox campaign isn't. It's uh, often represented as Grant pursuing uh, Lee's uh, tattered forces, uh, his handful of uh, starving men out of ammunition and all the rest of it. Not true. 
Lee left Richmond with a sizable and formidable army, and uh, Grant's campaign in the final days of uh, that uh, operation in Virginia is simply brilliant. Now, you mentioned uh, how, how young he was at the beginning of the war, and I have to admit, as I uh, year by year as I read about the Civil War, I note one by one the generals that I'm passing in age, and I haven't won any great victories yet. And I've, I've still got a few more to go, but uh, uh, eventually I will be at the age where I'll say, look, I guess I'm not going to go down in history as one of the great military commanders of all time. Um, well, don't go to see that movie about Alexander the Great. Well, there, there's one. If, when I when he was my age, he'd been dead for a good 12, 15 years. Uh, so you're right. That's a good point. Now, when you uh, you mentioned that Grant learned from his mistakes, you suppose if he were in the, the fishbowl, the media fishbowl of the East, he would never have had that opportunity. Uh, not only was it um, um, the army around Washington, but it was constantly under the eye of Congress. And it was constantly under the eye of the president. It was constantly subject to uh, pressure to advance against the enemy and to a very detailed um, reckoning of every uh, miscalculation made by uh, McClellan. So that McClellan was actually afraid to lead his army into battle. One of his subordinate commanders was uh, General Charles P. Stone, a man from Massachusetts, uh, a brave and uh, honorable soldier. But when one of his uh, subordinates, namely uh, Senator Baker, led an army to defeat at Ball's Bluff in uh, October 1861, Stone ultimately found himself imprisoned in New York Harbor, imprisoned as uh, being sympathetic to the enemy, um, imprisoned on these uh, trumped-up and preposterous charges that were an absolute disgrace, the American system of justice. But it actually happened. We do, or we have in the past, thrown generals into jail for losing battles. It sounds like the sort of thing that you'd expect of Stalin or Hitler. Uh, but it's happened in the United States as well. What became of Stone after that? Of Stone? Yes. Well, uh, very interesting. He goes to Egypt. Um, he serves the uh, uh, Khedive of Egypt uh, in organizing military forces there. And he re uh, ultimately returns to the United States where he, in the um, end of his career, gets this wonderful assignment uh, to construct the base for the Statue of Liberty. The Statue of Liberty is within sight of the prison cell that he occupied during the Civil War. It's just an incredible turn of events. So Stone, uh, he did not serve again in the war, however. he was. Yes, not, he uh, did. He was actually restored to federal service during the war and uh, ended up um, in uh, Banks' army and... Uh, in the Red River campaign where, like everybody else, uh, he went down to uh, uh, an ignominious defeat and had no opportunity to redeem his reputation. Well, with the, the thought of Stone before him, you can imagine how McClellan was um, cautious in the face of the enemy. 
unwilling to engage unless he had uh, what he believed to be overwhelming forces, and even when he had them, he didn't quite believe that. That is, he was informed by the Pinkerton uh, Agency founder, Alan Pinkerton himself, that the Confederates had a larger army than he did, and on that basis, he uh, behaved cautiously and uh, ultimately uh, lost command. Lost command not because he had been defeated in battle, but because he had not used his army effectively. He was defeated uh, morally or intellectually uh, as much as physically then. I think so, and yet uh, he could have been elected uh, President of the United States in 1864. There was just so much uh, sympathy for him, and uh, uh, the Democrats uh, had a good shot at uh, uh, defeating the re-election of uh, Lincoln. If only uh, the McClellan campaign or the Democrats' campaign in 1864 had been accompanied by uh, Union losses in the field. It's not inconceivable that uh, George B. McClellan would have replaced Lincoln as President of the United States. Now, you mentioned uh, McClellan miss, uh, getting bad in intelligence from, from Pinkerton and his uh, scouts during the Peninsular Campaign. There's some controversy over whether Lee perhaps may have actually had a larger army than has been thought, that maybe McClellan's estimates weren't as wildly wrong. Uh, well, they were wrong. Uh, just how wild they were, uh, that, that's a matter of dispute. Uh, it's hard to tell with um, uh, Civil War armies. That is, uh, those figures are not as um, hard and reliable as uh, we would like them to be, but we do know that from the days of, um, well, from early days of military action right up through the Vietnam War, intelligence has told the United States Army what it believes the Army officers would like to hear. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if that isn't a complicating factor in Iraq at this very moment, as we're talking on the radio. Uh, military intelligence is, after all, a subordinate uh, branch of this uh, military structure. And it's very difficult for anybody to tell top commanders in the field something they don't want to hear. And that was probably as true uh, in, in the Civil War, you're suggesting, as it has been in war since right up to the present day. Oh, absolutely. Well, I think that's a, a worthwhile thought. Let's take a break here. This is Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. We're going to come back in a few minutes with more from John Y. Simon. <laughs> 